Welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. And Brenna, we have a very special guest joining us for this episode. We do have a special guest, and not the laughter of Baby Groot in the background, who is watching a new show he's discovered called Animal Mechanicals that is a French-Canadian ripoff of Transformers that he's obsessed with. Um, Is it in French? uh, No, it's been dubbed. (laughs) It's quite, quite poor. Um, No, even more exciting than that, we have a return guest to the show. Hi, Hannah. Oh, hi. I was like, are you going to say my name? Like, no, absolutely not. Absolutely not. No. Sorry. You're you're a bit like Voldemort. You are she who shall not be named. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I got to say, timing there with that laughter right when you said you had a special guest. Incredible. Okay. We don't use his name, though, on the show. Remember? It's okay. Oh, I'm I can so sorry. No, that's okay. Um, so yes, Hannah McGregor is joining us. Hannah McGregor is obviously Harry Potter podcast royalty. Of course. And (laughs) we've brought her back because today we are talking about Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. Or as I call it, Harry Potter and where is the only character I care about? (laughs) Harry Potter and why is this just over 200 page book so long? (laughs) Harry Potter and how did you put so many different events in one children's book? (laughs) I kept reading it and being like, wait, this is this book too? (laughs) <laughs> I just don't understand. Everybody's like, oh my god, Hogwarts might close. I'm like, this school should clearly close. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, the fact that we're waiting for a child to die before pulling that trigger? No, 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 no. The first child who gets petrified, the school should close. <laughs> <laughs> Groot agrees. Perfect. Joke. That Groot joke was appreciated. <laughs> This feels remarkably timely right now, considering that we are engaged in conversations about the relative safety of allowing our children into schools. And the fact that the Hogwarts staff is like, well, several petrifications is fine. Just like multiple tragic student injuries on an annual basis (laughs) are fine. We're totally cool with it. Students will lose bones sometimes. Harry Potter and the Associate Director of Risk Management. That's the one I want to read. (laughs) Oh, that position has been vacant for many years. (laughs) Yeah, so so we chose this title because, of course, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets came out 22 years ago this week. And gosh, ladies, could we have been more timely in our decision (laughs) to program this? So folks, we are recording this two weeks in advance of when you are hearing it, and we are at the height of a certain controversy that Miss J.K. Rowling absolutely will not let go of. (laughs) So we're just going to address it right off the top, because I don't think there's any other way to get around it. People who have had the unfortunate pleasure of following Miss Rowling on Twitter and on social media for the last couple of years will know that she has more or less become an absolutely terrible person. And right now she has doubled and tripled down on her assertions that more or less trans women are not women and it's a whole lot of garbage. And that she's not transphobic because she loves trans men because they are women. Which is such galaxy brain thinking, I can't even really follow it. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a lot going on in her statements. We've all known that Rowling was a turf for a while because it's been sort of like 
she's been liking certain posts and Mm -hmm. retweeting certain posts. So you were able to sort of read it, but she sort of kept it on the DL enough that people who wanted to could ignore it. Mm -hmm. And in the past week, she has doubled down so hard in the form of ultimately making a public statement, like publishing an essay about her perspective on sex and gender, Mm -hmm. which is like transphobic discourse Mm -hmm. 101. It also misrepresents actual facts of actual legal cases. Yes. You're right. It's it's transphobic discourse 101. It's exactly what transphobes always do, which is sort of represent this greater threat with absolutely no specificity. Mm-hmm. But meanwhile, use extremely specific parsing of false representations of facts to hold up their end of the fight. Mm-hmm. It is classic, and it's long, and I don't recommend you read it. No. You're not going to gain anything new from any further engagement on her end. No. If nothing else, the benefit of this has been watching the community of the fandom come together in outrage about not only what she's doing to herself, but also the reputation of a beloved set of texts that people, you know, have a certain nostalgic fondness for that has changed a lot of lives but it's been really dispiriting to watch particularly trans fans of this franchise have to engage with the fact that the person who created something so valuable to them is ultimately saying that their lives don't matter aren't real yeah Mm -hmm. it's absolutely terrible for those people in particular yeah there is such a strong queer and trans fandom around harry potter I particularly want to shout out The Gaily Prophet, which is a really excellent queer Harry Potter podcast, queer and trans hosted as well. And they really represent or or embody that sort of really exciting queer and trans fan intervention into the world of Harry Potter and how this world like opens up lots of possibilities for people to imagine themselves into it. And she can't take that away from us. Because right. she's not the boss of these books anymore, mm-hmm. but she sure can make it hard for everyone by being as publicly monstrous as possible. God, you know, yes. like, this all started last week with some tweets where she she moved from her general standard operating procedure of retweeting gross things mm-hmm. to quote tweeting some gross things to share her gross thoughts. And then <laughs> this week moved into the essay which, of course, then led to a ton of very public turf support of her words, which yes. got mainstreamed in the press because of how significant a figure she is. And I just, with every passing day, just kept thinking, can you stop? We haven't talked about you in months. <laughs> now we have to do your book this week. And it's just... Also, the fact that like we're living through the midst of a yes. huge resurgence of support for Black Lives Matter. Yes. Mm-hmm. That there were like active protests, like a huge transformative protest movement happening right now. That it's yes. literally Pride Month. Like, it's she's literally chosen... Pride Month. Like, read the room. <laughs> oh, yeah. She's chosen this moment to center herself, to center her very specifically white, cishet, feminist worldview. And uh, it's just so damned exhausting for someone whose subject position is in no way implicated. I can't imagine to be in the fandom right now and to feel 
the weight of these words because god that essay is so long it's like four thousand words and it's so just like it's so long and i will also add in addition to sort of watching how painful this is particularly for queer and trans fans at the same time so many people are taking this moment to dunk on anyone who ever liked this series yeah. the number yeah. of tweets that i have read that are like oh, what's that? J.K. Rowling's posting uninteresting opinions that are basically a pastiche of other people's ideas. Wow, you would never have guessed that she's like that from reading her books. <laughs> yeah, I and don't know like, that hey. I care for the diminishing of something that people like. I mean, it's one thing to suggest that people might expand their reading list. You know, I'd just like to give a quick shout out to authors like Ronnie Mandius, Sarah Cadard, Everett Maroon, April Daniels, Aiden Thomas, Kai Chang Tom, Ivan Coyote, Mason Deaver, Fox Benwell, among many, many other trans and non-binary writers who are doing exciting work that people should be seeking out. I'll list a couple of recommendations in the show notes. But, you know, I think it's great that people are using this as an opportunity to say, broaden your reading horizons and check out other works by trans writers, non-binary artists, queer authors. You know, that's great. That feels timely and responsive to me. But at the same time, I don't think that it means we should be open season attacking people for liking something like Harry Potter. Because guess what? Harry Potter means something significant to a lot of people. Yeah. Jay Eden had a tweet this week that I, I retweeted with deep feeling, which <laughs> was, which was, dear Harry Potter fans, you will get through this. Sincerely, someone for whom Ender's Game once meant a great deal. <laughs> Ooh, right? We've always had problematic authors whose texts remain worthy of critical investigation, of pleasurable reading experiences. Like, we need to be able to have the conversations about the responsibility of the author, but also the texts themselves and what they mean to people. Because, I mean, I'm always hesitant to talk about cancel culture because I think it ultimately it's a bit uninteresting. But <laughs> these texts don't go away and they continue to mean things. They still have value, even if the people who wrote them or created them can sometimes be the very worst that humanity has to offer. I wonder, though, if what it gives us when an author goes so publicly and flamingly off the rails in the way that J.K. Rowling has this week, in the way that Orson Scott Card has for much of his life. Mm -hmm. I wonder if it gives us an opportunity to rethink the experience of fandom to be a little bit less Stanish. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe don't put people up on the pedestal. Yeah, and maybe maybe the book doesn't have to be perfect to be meaningful to you, right? And maybe right. the text and the person who created it don't have to be perfect in order to be meaningful to you. And that doesn't excuse them, no, to clarify. No, it doesn't excuse them. But in fact, I think it makes the expectation of fandom maybe a little bit richer to ask yeah. that you not have to sanctify or deify something in order to relate or, or connect with it. Yeah, we need critical fandom. Yes! Mm. It's important in all of our fandoms. I'm experiencing a small slice of that this week. I was recently on another significantly more popular than my own Harry Potter podcast. Those don't exist. <laughs> I don't believe in this. Like, does orders of magnitude numbers over which place? Gasp. I don't want to dunk on this podcast. The person who hosts it is very nice. Okay. And invited me on it specifically to talk about a very Potter musical, which I hate. 
And so I talked about it and talked about all the problems that I have with it. And this person's quite large, I think sometimes not particularly critical Mm. fan audience is mad at me in a way that like Witch Please listeners are never mad at me because Witch Please listeners self-selected for like being willing to be critical. But it was a reminder that like there are significant portions of the Harry Potter fandom who are Stanish, who are like everything about this world is perfect. And if anyone says otherwise, they are a killer of my joy. Right. Yes. And that's not helpful. It doesn't make texts better. Uh Uh-uh. And I think that part of what has happened with rolling is, I mean, we talk about bubbles, all the progressives living in their bubbles, but there's a level at which she has lived in a bit of a chamber of that kind of voice, right? Yes, 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 yes. (laughs) A chamber of... Of (laughs) secrets? (laughs) (laughs) And the basilisk is critical thought. Oh, I hope that got some laughs from other people because that was great. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that was very meta joke. (laughs) I just think, you know, she has spent uh, the last 20 years really being reinforced in pretty much everything that came out of her mouth. And I think the emotional reaction that she has had to the criticisms of her views on sex and gender is outsized to the criticism that she has received. And I think there's a certain amount of, um, I don't know if whiplash is the right word or, or what the word is I'm looking for, where she's like suddenly having to countenance the idea that not everything that emerges from her pen is perfection. You'd think the whole writing mysteries under a pseudonym thing would have really capped that off for it, but yes <laughs> i just i've been really baffled about how she has not only decided to air really hurtful painful thoughts about people who love her work deeply but at the same time has in classic white feminist mode centered her feelings about the reactions to her critique Mm. over the harm that her critiques have caused yes and that to me is the disappointing part right like all of it's disappointing but to me this idea that all that matters to her is the way she feels Mm -hmm. like go take your billions and cry but i don't need to hear about it (laughs) yeah her unwillingness to listen Mm -hmm. to the harm that she is causing people, like the very real and dangerous harm. And thank you for raising the fact that this is Pride Month. And I think it's important to acknowledge that of the queer community, the trans population is the most vulnerable, the most at risk, the most like, like literally I saw a story earlier today about a trans woman who was found dismembered in Philadelphia. Like the danger and the harm to self and also from others for the trans community is massively high. So for this rich white lady who has lived on this pedestal for 22, 25 years, it's it's just a lot. And to clarify, one of the major sources of heightened risk for trans women in particular and for trans women of color in particular is the widespread discourse that trans women are secretly men Mm -hmm. in disguise who are trying to infiltrate spaces that are for women Mm -hmm. or who are trying to trick cis men. I mean, these all of these discourses, which we see repeated in Rowling's essay, she absolutely draws on those ideas. And those ideas 
directly lead to violence against trans people. Like it's literally a great line. Yeah. Yeah. It's literally killing people. Yeah. There is no nefarious plan from the trans community to infiltrate straight spaces and trick them or assault them. Like you're literally talking about people who are trying to live their authentic lives. They're too busy doing that. Mm hmm. And that's what Rowan can't fathom. And that's why she's so dangerous right now. Yeah. I think one of her earlier tweets, she was like, listen, I know and love some trans people. And if they were being oppressed, I would march with them. And it was like, okay, one, if, 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 and two, uh, there was an excellent tweet from uh, BC-based writer Andrea Bennett, who is non-binary, who was like, hey, guess what? I've been the trans person that, you know, some cis people know and love. And it sucks being that person. Mm. Like, don't use us as the veil for your hate. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So with all of that in mind, I'm going to encourage people in the spirit of giving, (laughs) seek out hashtags like Black Trans Lives Matter, Black Trans Crowdfund, Black Disabled Lives Matter. Uh, Look for opportunities where you can to donate, to sign petitions, to change legalities, to protect and promote the work of Black and trans creatives. Obviously, do what you can. Times are challenging and difficult, but really look for opportunities to not support JK Rowling, don't buy her properties. Do not stream the movies. This is going to be the one and only time you will ever hear me say this on the podcast. Illegally download these properties if you need to engage with them. (laughs) She doesn't need your money. Uh, I gotta say, I know you're going to edit a lot of this out, Joe, but Groot is really killing it on the reaction gifts today, audio reaction gifts today. (laughs) Absolutely. Full support of Groot. (laughs) That almost sounded like illegally download. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh, poor Joe. This is going to be a big one for editing, Joe. I'm sorry. (laughs) Super fun. This is why we record in advance. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So should we talk a little bit about this book? Sure. It's oh. got too much plot and not enough Hermione. I was going to say, are we going to get a patented Brenna recap? <laughs> She's actually done quite well in terms of distilling things. She's in the room. I'm sorry, who are you? <laughs> Groot, is that your mom? <laughs> All right. So this one opens up on Harry's 12th birthday because because we love a birthday uh, and the series. Um, and of course, he's stuck with the Dursleys and he's really stuck with the Dursleys. There's like bars on his windows and the whole nine yards. And this house elf named Dobby shows up, causes a bunch of havoc. But luckily, Harry gets himself rescued by Ron and Fred and George, who have stolen their dad's enchanted muggle car. Mm-hmm. The important thing about Dobby is that he's got this warning. Harry Potter is in danger. Harry Potter should not go back to Hogwarts, uh, which we'll just ignore and uh, proceed to Hogwarts. So, I mean, it really doesn't come to pass. No! That's sort of my issue with this is like Harry Potter is always in danger at Literally. Hogwarts. And there's nothing specifically targeting him this year. As near as I can figure, everyone is always in danger at Hogwarts. <laughs> That's what I was really sort of pondering this particular detail. As I was watching the movie, and I, I think it's that Dobby overheard the plan. 
yes. about yes. the journal yes. and probably that when the Malfoys were making the plan, they specifically were like, and hopefully Harry Potter will die. Right. Yes. Never mind Hermione, who's at much greater risk. No. <laughs> None of that is explained in either text, to be clear. No, no, yeah. not at all. No, <laughs> you have to just deduce it. So anyway, the usual, like, go to Diagon Alley and... Uh, Diagonally. 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 <laughs> what did he say? <laughs> um, so the usual, like, get your supplies and get on the train to Hogwarts all happens, except that for some reason when Harry and Ron approach... approach a porch? Hmm. Sorry, Joe, this is going to suck for you. When... <laughs> <laughs> when Harry and Ron approach platform nine and three quarters, uh, they don't get through. Like they run at the wall and the wall doesn't move. So they have to fly the magic car all the way to Hogwarts, which is, I guess, I would say the most famous scene in this book, which then continues Ugh. to go on inexplicably for some time. <laughs> I don't even want to talk about that part of the movie because that was just an example. of. Ugh. Yeah. I will say my favorite part of this book is where McGonagall goes, you couldn't have just sent an owl? <laughs> I love McGonagall. They are 12. They are bad at solving problems. <laughs> this is true. So bad at Which solving problems. Which is amazing problems. considering how many lives they end up always saving. You're just like, but you no. kids can barely use a wand. And yet you somehow <laughs> always manage to save the day. <laughs> so the, um, the, the red shirt teacher for this episode is Gildroy Lockhart, who has oh. arrived to teach Defense Against the Dark Arts. He's extremely fancy and um, we given several hints that he is a fraud uh, and in the end he turns out to be a fraud. There's a <laughs> chamber of secrets in the basement of the school which has gotten itself opened and a bunch of people and cat are getting themselves petrified because, I don't know, spoiler alert, it's a basilisk or whatever. So Harry and Ron, because Hermione gets herself petrified and so mm. we just have to deal with harry and ron for most mm -hmm. of this book also she's a cat for a bunch of it yeah she keeps getting written out it's rude yeah she's not in the beginning because she's not part of the escape plan uh mm. and then she's a cat and hiding in her room and then she's petrified so she's not in this i'm not gonna lie when you say it out loud it sounds like a bunch of mad libs <laughs> <laughs> In this book, Hermione will be a cat. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, there's a subplot where people think Hagrid's the one letting evil things out of the Chamber of Secrets, which makes absolutely no sense to anything we know about his character or how he interacts with the school as a whole. There's a diary, and Harry's been writing to Tom Riddle in this diary, and he feels very hashtag scene anyway they eventually go down into the chamber because Ginny is down there and there's a basilisk and harry with the help of some bird uh destroys some the bird. basilisk come on fox is one of the best characters in this book fox is iconic fox is one of the top two bird characters in this series <laughs> top two i'm sorry who's the top oh buckby no hedwig oh okay yeah I, i'll allow it yeah <laughs> Uh, and also a hat. So a bird and a hat come, and with the bird and the hat, uh, Harry saves everyone by stabbing a diary, which I have to say is the worst climax ever. And then everybody is saved and everything is fine. The end. Um, I have to say, Brenda, that may be my favorite plot recap you have ever done for this show. <laughs> it was absolutely impeccable. <laughs> Because you actually did kind of capture nearly everything that happens, and yet yeah. the disdain <laughs> was so present. This is going to get us our second bad review, Joe. <laughs> 
you know what? We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. We can't afford to keep annoying the fan base. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, come on. We've got to be really positive about Harry Potter here. So let's yeah. talk about how goddamn fat phobic this book is. Oh my god. Yes, go, Hannah, go. <laughs> I haven't reread this series since the original run of Witch Please, which at this point was five years ago. Oh, wow. Okay. Like, read the books and then did the podcast and then had people respond to the podcast and then mm-hmm. didn't revisit the books. And so this is my first time reading them with you. It's my first time revisiting them in light of the, like, much deeper critical conversations I've had with people about them. Yay! And I did not remember how bad the fat phobia was. What I remember is that my claim that these books are fat phobic is the top thing that listeners pushed back on. Really? They were like, uh, no, it's a symbol of how bad the Dursleys are. And uh, I was like, that's literally the definition of fat phobia. <laughs> you hear, hear yourself there? <laughs> What's happening there? And how you're talking? But. And also, black magic isn't racist either. Go on. Yeah, 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 yeah. absolutely. It's yeah. a metaphor for how things that are dark are bad. <laughs> That's not racism. <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't be ironic about racism. No. It's a f- nightmare. I should stop swearing so much on your podcast. <laughs> no, it's just one of those things, right? As you mentioned on the other podcasts, the minute you start to critically analyze things, you start to see some of these cracks. And mm-hmm. there's a population of people who just... They either don't ever see them or they don't want to acknowledge they're there. And the thing is, is that by acknowledging it, it doesn't make it bad. Like Rowling is making it bad in the way that she's writing the book. But it's not bad to have the conversation and acknowledge it and then try to work through it. Like, Mm -hmm. what does this mean? What do people take away from it when they read basically fat Dursley equals bad? And the fact that so the opening chapters of this book are hard to read including that they are quite a horrible description of child abuse yes yeah it's way worse than the first book way worse than the first book way worse than what we see in the movie like much darker than i remembered including that they are systematically starving him like that's Mm -hmm. really upsetting and also every body part on dudley that is ever described is preceded by the adjective fat. Yes. He looked at Harry with his fat face, and then he used his fat hand to touch his fat body, and he was disgusting. Yeah. And of course, like, the symbol of decadence that ultimately gets Harry into so much trouble is a multi-tiered cake. Yes, absolutely. And while Harry is working out in the yard all day, Dudley is sitting in front of the TV eating ice cream. What I really noticed this time as I was reading is that when he gets to the burrow, when he's liberated by the Weasleys, which in part one of the signs of that liberation is that he is finally given enough to eat, which Mm -hmm. is great. Delighted for a child to not be abused. Uh, Just to to go on the record. (laughs) Thank you for making your opinion clear. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it really specifically is made clear that everybody in the Weasley household also eats a lot. Mm -hmm. Like at one point they're described before they go to Diagon Alley, the boys eat six bacon sandwiches a piece. Yeah. Yeah. When Dudley eats a lot of bacon, it's disgusting. disgusting. When the Weasleys eat a lot of bacon, it's fine. Mm -hmm. And that's because Dudley is fat. Mm-hmm. And when fat people eat, it's gross. But when thin people eat, it's like a fun character quirk. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, he makes concrete mention of the thinness of each and every one of the Weasleys once he arrives. Like, it's a mm-hmm. clear distinguishing point against the Dursleys that this good family, they are well cared for by this matriarch who seems to do nothing but cook and create magic spells that cook <laughs> so that they can uh, all eat their What's the fill, problem with that? But they're, <laughs> but they're all slim. And we're told that like... 17 times upon Harry's arrival at the house. And then again at Hogwarts, right? Like, who are the fat characters at Hogwarts? Yeah. Crab and Goyle? Right? Yep. Yeah. It's gross, man. It is really gross. It is really gross. And as I was reading this, I I kept thinking, I do want to talk about good parts of this book, too. Because I do think that there's good parts of this book. I can't remember any of them right now, but I swear they're probably in there. (laughs) We'll circle back around. But there is this consistency with which, and I think this this is the sort of tropishness of this series, that a lot of the time it's dealing in familiar short narrative shorthands. Mm-hmm. So you know this character is the bad guy because he looks like a bad guy. You know this character is the good guy because he looks like a good guy. Right. And by virtue of drawing on those tropes, it draws also, I think, unthinkingly and uncritically and unself-reflexively on the background of those tropes and and right before we started recording i was saying that i've really been noticing how consistently all of the villains fail to perform their gender correctly Mm -hmm. so you really see that in lockhart like we know that lockhart is bad because lockhart is a feminized man Mm -hmm. yeah he is queer coded which is he's too pretty he's obsessed with his looks he's interested in the attention of women but never seems to act on it Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah one might almost say that lockhart is queer coded Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that that queerness becomes like a textual signifier of his villainy Well, and the thing about him, right, is that it's not even that he is the villain, although he fulfills that role. He fails to perform masculinity correctly, and also he fails to perform his role correctly, right? Like, Mm -hmm. there's something inherently fraudulent about his performance of gender that is to cue us to his inherently fraudulent role as the dark arts teacher. Right. Mm -hmm. And he cannot be relied upon when the time comes, right? Like when you need this authority figure, when you need the person to stand up and do what's right, he cannot be relied upon and in fact becomes infantile. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. I oh, I lost it. I had a really great point about this. No, it's not your fault. Distracted by the charming it's giggling. Adorable giggling happening in here. So cute. <laughs> it reminds me of a lot of the other villains we encounter later in the series. Like Umbridge is characterized by the fact that her sort of hyper femininity disguises one that she is explicitly described as ugly uh, and two that she's not actually performing femininity correctly. Mm-hmm. Oh, That's oh enough- I remembered. Sorry, I remembered mm, it. Go. I remembered my point. <laughs> Which is that um, I think it's really significant to um, Rawlings' later works that Lockhart's inability to perform masculinity correctly and his unwillingness to adhere to gender norms, the feminized nature with which he is a man, puts children at risk. Yes. Mm. And I think that's pretty significant, right? It's not just that they can't rely on the teacher. It's that they can't rely on... I mean, because let's be clear, they cannot rely on any teacher. <laughs> no, no. At this school. I was like, who isn't putting children at risk? <laughs> but admittedly, we've identified that as a bit of a YA trope. Right? It is like, totally Parents yeah. cannot be relied upon or trusted. 
But when they enter the chamber together, it's the fact that he is so terrified of being found out in his falseness. Like he he would kill or he would at least mesmerize Ron. The yeah. only thing is that Ron's wand sucks and so he does it to himself. But that harm is targeted at the children. Yes. Which I think is gross, <laughs> given what we know about Rowling's politics, but also really telling. I, yeah, no, we're not talking about the movie yet. Okay. Oh. I know, and I'm excited to talk about the movie. The one thing I think is an interesting complication of the points that we're making that I do think all stand is that Harry himself is also encountering the experience of being misread because of the way he also aligns with a lot of the tropes of villainy. Right. Yes. And so he is realizing that the way that he understands himself to be as a person is not the way other people are perceiving him. And even as I'm saying this out loud, I'm like, you see how like mm. trans readers could read and love these books? But, but also like, how how can the author herself not see the direct correlation like she literally undermines her own real life arguments in the text that she became famous for but the other thing that is true about harry's experience of how people read him is that ultimately the path to goodness is through choice which i think is also significant to rowling's politics right <laughs> so harry is not slytherin explicitly because he chose gryffindor Right. Mm -hmm. And so Slytherin is the is the dark path upon which you may fall if, if you're following your quote unquote true identity. But Gryffindor is the choice you can make. Mm -hmm. Gross. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot going on in this book about sort of essence versus appearance and who you are innately and who you can choose to be. And that plays out also in the obsession with blood purity in these books. Yes, and yeah. the idea that Hermione disproves the denigration of muggle-born wizards through her skill, mm -hmm. not yeah. through any sort of innate problem with that whole blood purity discourse, but by being better mm -hmm. at magic than everybody else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a bit of a shame, right? Like if she was a lesser wizard... That would, what, prove the point that she was lesser than? Well, the two pure-blood white dudes who she hangs out with sure get to be incompetent as much as they want, huh? Oh my god. Ugh. There's no real-world parallels here. No, I can't think of a one. <laughs> Men in real life have it really hard, okay? <laughs> this is a really hard time for me as a white man <laughs> as I go and excuse myself and just cancel myself directly. <laughs> cancel oneself but i was particularly struck as i was rereading this on page nine as part of the description of the dursleys harry says and i say harry says because i'm assuming that the narrative voice here is harry's yeah correct the dursleys were what wizards called muggles parentheses not a drop of magical blood in their veins mm -hmm. i was like oh that's interesting because that is just like a, a turn of phrase we use but considering that the rest of the book is going to be about blood purity yeah. it does seem kind of that there's some underlying discourse here like Hermione proves that she gets to be part of this world by being remarkable and more special than other muggles it also all strikes me as a scientific impossibility right like if your sibling has this quote-unquote magic blood, it's not a quote at all, <laughs> then wouldn't you have a drop about you? And where does Hermione's magical blood come from? Like, I... 
The logistics are a little unclear, admittedly. I, I struggle with simultaneously the obsession with like, yes, blood purity and also actually not unlike most transphobic discourse, obsession with a particular component of science-ish language, but no actual interaction with science. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's no attempt to like understand like genetically. <laughs> yeah. But like, that's fine. It's magic. I don't need to understand. Like, this is where we get into, like, what's that made-up Star Wars nonsense trying to explain the Force? <laughs> Gleep glossary, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Gleep Glop, precisely. <laughs> Mitochlorian. Mitochlorians. Oh, I was going to say Mandalorian, and I was like, that's the wrong <laughs> you one. You know what? It all kind of works. Yeah. <laughs> you guys are terrible at being nerds. Oh, my God. <laughs> but I don't want that nonsense. Yeah. I just no. don't want you to talk about blood purity. Well, that's the so thing, much. right? Like, you don't have to introduce the concept, you know? But it is not dissimilar to how gender and sex is talked about in this particular discourse, this this mm-hmm. discourse of which Rowling is sort of, I don't know, like the leader now. Mm-hmm. That we want to engage with sciencey sounding things insofar as they persuade people who don't know anything. Right. But we don't want the, the responsibility of knowing things. Yeah. <laughs> Knowing things is hard. <laughs> but then there's also like the weird way that it intersects with class issues, right? Mm. Because of course Dobby represents this undervalued membership in a magical community. We also find out that the janitor, the guy who cleans the school. Filch. Filch. Filch, yes. We find out that Filch is a squib, which means that he does not have any magical properties, despite the fact that he, you know, comes from a wizarding family. So, mm-hmm. you know, we're increasingly breaking this made up world into factions of like privilege and class and quote unquote race, for lack of a better term. And like this book is literally filled with it. That's what this book brings to the table compared to all the other texts, which are so hyper-concerned with the rise of Voldemort. Mm-hmm. And they're not unconnected, but I think that's one of the reasons people like this book less, is that it doesn't have as strong a correlation as the other books do. But I think this book is richer for having these complicated nuances, and yet they're almost all inherently problematic. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that there is a lot of troubling stuff happening when you start to drill down, I come back to this again and again in my readings of these books, that what's troubling about the discourse of blood purity and disdain for muggles is that the whole premise of the series ultimately reinforces the disdain for muggles by Mm -hmm. only having terrible muggle characters and by making it very clear that it is better to be a wizard than to not be. And so if narratively you are arguing that the more magical you are, the better... Mm-hmm. And that all of our squibs are terrible and sad, and all of our muggles are terrible and sad, and that good heroic characters are good at magic, that ultimately reinforces what Voldemort's saying. Yeah, and not even just good and heroic, but like meaningful. Like there is no meaningful life outside of magic, is there? Not that we're ever shown. No. Well, and the the weird thing to just to come back to Dobby, because it strikes me that it's important that the final moments of the book and the film have this kind of white magical savior component to them. Like, you know, Dobby's a bit of a nuisance character. He's a little frustrating to read because of the way he acts out. 
but he has his own magic that he is quite literally neutered from his responsibility to the Malfoys, and it's only through the virtuous Harry Potter that he is freed from indentured servitude. And again, it's just like, oh, great. So now we we have the savior narrative coming in. I mean, it's very much in line with what Harry does throughout most of the books, but... And it's going to get a lot worse in later books. I was going to say, yeah. I mean, this is the taste of things to come. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Should we transition over to the movie? And yes, I did use that term deliberately. (laughs) Yes. Yes, please. One year ago, he learned the truth. You're a wizard, Harry. And his first year at Hogwarts school became legend. And so, for Harry Potter and his friends, another year begins. Bloody birds are menace. Their education in the magical arts continues. Pixies. Laugh if you will, Mr. Finnegan. See what you make of them. No! Old rivalries grow stronger. Slytherin's got a new seeker. Malfoy? You'll never catch me, Potter! And something in the school's dark past will be awakened. The Chamber of Secrets has indeed been opened. Unless the culprit is caught, it is likely the school will be closed. Harry Potter must go home! Oh dear, we are in trouble. Here's the plan. You disguise yourselves as Crabbe and Goyle. Are we going to drink that? Yes. Harry? Ron. Excellent. This year... Warner Brothers Pictures presents... How dare you steal that car! The next chapter of Harry Potter... Where the past will return... And the struggle for the future of Hogwarts will begin. All right. So Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets comes out in 2002. It is once again directed by Chris Columbus. This movie has a $100 million budget, which is about on par with the original, and it makes $879 million worldwide. So it's a step down by about $80 million from the first film, but it's still highly regarded, obviously very successful. Our entire returning cast, I mean, once you get on board this train, you're riding it all <laughs> the way to Hogwarts, so... But our new significant Unless players... Unless you're Madame Hooch. <laughs> never to be spoken of again. She's never to dead be to us. <laughs> I think we made that joke last time, too. (laughs) So new uh, on the playing field this time is Bonnie Wright as Ginny Weasley. We have Christian Coulson as Tom Riddle. We'll never see him again. Toby Jones as the voice of Dobby. Jason Isaacs, who is magnificent as Lucius Malfoy. And then uh, Brenna, once again, Kenneth Branagh. Here he is again. Second week in a row. (laughs) It's actually pronounced Brenna. (laughs) (laughs) and he is playing Gilderoy Lockhart he is playing a bowl cut perfect casting it's interesting that you say that because I texted Joe last night and I was was having none of it this was a miscast because okay important context have you seen Paddington 2 Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> yes, I forgot about this conversation. What a week it's been. <laughs> so, so you know Hugh Grant in that role? Mm-hmm. 
playing the famous person playing the famous person who is not self-aware. Yeah. I wanted that for Gilderoy Lockhart. Mm. Particularly okay. because Hugh Grant in that second Paddington film is so theatrical. Yes. Right? Yes. Like he's a bad actor who's playing a role as a good person well, but he's actually a villain. Yes. The pleasure of that, I mean, that is a great point. And I think that would also have been a really, a really spot on version of Lockhart. Yes. My pleasure in Kenneth Branagh's portrayal of this character is that I believe that this is what Kenneth Branagh is actually like. Yes, yes, yes. Correct. Yes. It's really hard not to watch it and be like, oh, is he just playing himself? Because (laughs) this is spot on. 100%. And that is so funny to me. I won't lie. It makes me sad that Emma Thompson is not in this film because I feel like it would have been fun to have watched her mock him in character. I Mm. always love them on screen together for that exact reason. And also just imagine that their marriage must have been a nightmare. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's too many. That's too many personalities. (laughs) I imagine a lot of drinking on her part. Lots of sighing. In that, like, dueling scene, was anybody else like, you definitely brought this cape from home? (laughs) You're way too comfortable. (laughs) That is your personal cape from your personal cape collection. I mean, hashtag goals. If I could have a cape closet, I would be fully on board with this, so. (laughs) Joe just walking around the streets of Toronto, 35 degrees above zero in a cape. I mean, I'm not wearing anything but the cape, yes. recording this from jail right now (laughs) (laughs) oh dear um so what do we think about this movie apart from the fact that like the book it is way too long oh it's so long it's very long and these (laughs) these adaptations really show you how much plot there is in these books yes (laughs) it just feels like you are just trudging from plot point (laughs) to plot point yeah I mean, I think as we described in the first film, Chris Columbus is a little too, he's a little too reverent to it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There's not a comfort level in pushing back against Rowling's text. And maybe it's just because this is only the second time, but there's this feeling that we're shoehorning in elements from the book, even though there are certain excisions that do happen, but it feels very much like, okay, well, we have to have this scene in here, even though it's ultimately not that important to what's going on. Mm Mm-hmm. My example of that is the Quidditch bludger scene. Oh my gosh. In the book, I'm like, yeah, all right. I, get, I mean, we, we learn that Dobby's pushing buttons and also Gilderoy can't really magic. Mm-hmm. But it's so long for that payoff. It's yeah. so long. I recognize that not everybody feels this way, but I need additional Quidditch scenes like I need additional holes in my head. Like I just <laughs> don't get anything from it. I don't enjoy it. I don't understand the basic mechanisms of the sport seem to make everything except the bludger pointless. So I don't understand why everybody else doesn't just stand on the field. And I... It's a bad sport. <laughs> yeah. It's people definitely have identified there's, there's issues with the way that the game is played. Every time I watch it, I'm always just like, so is the goal to try to get as many points as possible before the snitch is caught? Because snitch, if not, it's really just for. a game between two seekers. Yeah, that's exactly it. You can never get enough points in the rest of the game to overshoot the snitch. So yeah, you can tell it's a bad game because when people adapted it to real life play, they changed the rules. <laughs> yeah. 
And not just because they couldn't fly. Yeah. It makes me feel like I'm 21 years old playing World of Warcraft in my basement apartment again because all I can yell about is game mechanics every time I watch them start to play Quidditch. Yeah. I will confess my... The scene that drove me crazy in this was all of the additional garbage we had to put up with the car. Yes. In the book, it's like they just can't drive it all that well. And then it seems like it runs out of gas and they hit the Whomping Willow. Whereas in the film, we have to have this stupid action sequence where they nearly get run over by the train. Harry almost falls out. And I just I couldn't help myself but wonder, why is this here? Like we're living in a world of magic. Children will be entertained regardless. It's a flying car. Yeah. Also, the tree looks really bad. The tree does look really bad, but it's like these are the action scenes, right? These are particularly the special effects heavy yes. scenes where they're showing off the CG that they have at the time. And I, I'm sure for a young audience watching the movies when they came out, those scenes were like, whoa, mm-hmm. that car's flying. Yeah. <laughs> I feel convinced of that. Right. <laughs> it's just interesting to me because there are certain elements of this film that I think visually they're fine you know obviously whenever we're talking about fx heavy films in hindsight some of it just doesn't age all that well Mm -hmm. but then i think of stuff like the set design of the final battle sequence in the chamber of secrets and the giant face statue of salazar slytherin like just the way that that set is constructed is so terrifying and gorgeous in equal measure amazing i was thinking a lot as i was watching this because i was watching it in the wake of rolling being such a disappointment and i was like (laughs) how much of the rich uh immersive fandom for this world comes down to the set designers Mm -hmm. yeah because watching these movies and wanting to just go stay at the burrow Mm -hmm. like wanting to be immersed in this rich textural vibrant interesting world that's just full of stuff and how much that just that stuff is part of what makes it exciting absolutely and having now visited both the wizarding world of harry potter and also the studio tour outside of london like humble brag hannah (laughs) yeah i'm a big nerd uh, I really like to put a lot of money in J.K. Rowling's transphobic pocket. No. I make great <laughs> life choices. But a lot of that stuff is practical effects. Yeah. yeah. So like the studio tour, they've got one of the rooms in the borough set up and the knitting needles are there and they're just going because oh, that's fine. just like a mechanical device. And mm-hmm. the door to the Chamber of Secrets, all the snake heads. <gasps> oh, I love that effect. That's also built. Mm. That's a mechanically built door and they've got the door there and it's such a tricky mechanism. They won't operate it. They turn it on like once a year. And so you can see the door and then they'll show you a video of the door working. (laughs) But they're like, it takes like a week to reset all of the pieces. And like once something breaks, we're never going to fix it because it's so elaborate. So we're just not going to use it. But like, Those really exciting scenes and moments are, for the most part, practical. Like, somebody built this world. Somebody's, a whole bunch of people, built Mm -hmm. this world. And I think that's what makes it feel so, like, oh, I just want to get in there. Yeah. What I think is remarkable about the set design for me in this film is that extends to the real world. Like, I spent a fair amount of the 80s and 90s staying with my grandparents in the UK and like when we're in the Dursley's house thankfully that wasn't my grandparents house but like that 
we own all this stuff and we have to display it in these small rooms with the doors closed. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's such a concrete aesthetic to me. And it's, it is one that has passed, like it sort of had its time and has passed. But the way that it is rendered is so just perfect. And the way all of those scenes in England, uh, non, non-magical non England, are shot from the height of a 12-year-old. It makes them extremely nostalgic for me, right? Like all of those very typical bathroom fixtures and counters and stuff are all shot from Harry's height. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I have a lot of problems with these books and films, but the visual look of them is not one. Yeah, I got 99 problems, but a set design ain't one. <laughs> As the saying goes, I was recently rewatching the seventh movie with okay. Marcel, and we noticed so in that one, spoiler, the <laughs> Dursleys have moved. So they're in the house um, at Ford Privet Drive, but the Dursleys have left, and so they've taken all of their stuff with them. And Marcel pointed out that the wallpaper where their furniture used to be is faded. because like that chair has been there for 20 years yeah never moved it (laughs) yeah and it's just like those touches like Mm -hmm. everything feels real and lived in Mm -hmm. and by virtue of it feeling lived in it feels like you could also live in it although the flip side is for the same reason i'd never want to live in the castle because it feels damp and cold and i can smell it does that's one of my favorite smells <laughs> what yeah like damp, damp wet rock yeah oh no, yeah it's one Hannah. of my all-time favorite smells as a child i love to go down into our unfinished concrete basement and smell it oh man i can literally smell that right now mm, love hilarious. that smell I think that's one of the other reasons why I like it's it's such a weird fixation in this particular movie with moaning Myrtle in the disused girl's bathroom. But even the look of that bathroom, the way that the sink and the bathroom fixtures pull out to reveal the slide that goes down into the Chamber of Secrets, like that is such a great, interesting looking set. Mm. The attention to detail in a lot of the set design, the props department, you can just see all the care that's Mm -hmm. gone into recreating this world so that children can really just get lost in it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 100%. It just makes you want there to be, you want to be able to go into that castle and run around for the day. You know, you want to be able to, to go touch those things. In that sense, the films were brilliantly designed to further monetize them via amusement park experiences. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, every set looks ready to like, oh, if you could just step through your screen into this magical theme park where we can charge you $25 a head, but yes. Oh, oh, $25. No, no, no. $100. (gasps) Really? I haven't left the house in a while. (laughs) Inflation happened while Joe was quarantined. Oh, Oh, all of these experiences are significantly more expensive than you would expect. Oh, that's so disappointing to hear. I mean, it's to be expected, and yet... One does not become a billionaire via magnanimity. Fair enough, yeah. (laughs) God. (laughs) Any other thoughts about this film in particular? I mean, we haven't talked about Jason Isaacs, and I just feel like we have to acknowledge him. (laughs) Oh, he's so good. Who are we talking about? 
Jason Isaacs plays Lucius Malfoy. Oh, okay. He's wonderful, beautifully cast as well. His mannerisms, the way he uses his snake head cane mm-hmm. to move Harry's hair so he can see the scar. Like everything he does is so calculated and insidious. I love it. The decision they made in the final confrontation between Harry and Lucius to have Lucius attempt to use the Ooh. killing curse. Yes, I didn't remember that until this rewatch. At school. It's insane. It's such a small thing because he just starts to say the beginning of the curse. Mm -hmm. It's not in the book. No. It makes nary a lick of sense. (laughs) I mean, it would be the end of him if he was even remotely close to saying it. Like the fact that it's only the three of them who are there and like Dobby doesn't care because he's freed and Harry's not going to say anything because he's a student, but I think it speaks so much, not just to Jason Isaac's performance, which is incredible, but also I think this is an interesting distinction that the film has chosen to go darker in this direction compared Mm -hmm. to some of the elements in the book, which we've already talked about, went darker in other places. Yeah. I appreciate that the visual world of this film is so carefully defined that you know that everybody with greasy hair is evil. <laughs> I mean, again, just true to light, Brenna. If you're not washing your hair, you're probably a monster. It's how I know that I myself am a villain. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, aren't we all villains? Judging from the reviews we're going to get from this episode, oh. we're probably all terrible people. No. <laughs> no, I will accept negative feedback exclusively from the shiny haired. <laughs> Only the Gilderoy Lockhart's are allowed to provide feedback on this episode, please. I want yeah, to see those curlers in. Yeah, that's why I got this t-shirt that says, Only Gilderoy Lockhart can judge me. <laughs> it was bought on discount because no one else wanted to purchase it. <laughs> I can't imagine Gilderoy Lockhart has a lot of fans in this universe. Like, is he a memorable character oh, to people? Oh, Hannah sent me the best text about this. <laughs> she's like i never before realized the absurdity of this world famous wizard taking a job at a high school mm-hmm. oh the it's mighty so, have fallen it's so funny but he hasn't fallen like you see him and he's at this like sold out book signing mm-hmm. signing his new memoir which has been you know at the top of the bestseller list for however long yep. he's doing a four-hour signing, which is truly wild and unheard of. Like, this guy... All right, here is the one reason I can think of that he would take on this job. Because in the style of many professors to precede him, it's so that he can assign his books as the required reading in order to artificially inflate his sales numbers. Which he does. Not just one book, like all, all of, of his the books. books. All of his books. I love that all of his tests are also based on the books. Like, it's a bit of a simple joke, but it's a very effective joke. I will say I was very grateful that they clawed back Hermione's breathlessness about Gilderoy for the film. Because yeah. it doesn't make sense to her character in the book and it's annoying. No, it's silly. And I also <laughs> like that they make Mrs. Weasley less of a fusspot in the film than she is in the book. I'm thinking about the flu powder scene, for example, where she's just like, just go do it, Harry. What the hell's your problem? Go. (laughs) You've got got this. I love how the Weasleys are all just dirty for the rest of the the time and time on Alley. It's so funny. They have magical powers, but not wet naps. No. Um, Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Even though there's absolutely spells, like really simple spells that would just clean them off. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
It's very silly. It's so that we know that they're poor. Yeah, it's exactly That's it. The only oh, because they look like street urchins. Yes. To return to books for a moment. Yes. I hope every professor who has ever assigned one a multi hundred dollar textbook Oof. or two their own textbook mm-hmm. uh, in order to require students to read it looks at this movie and realizes that that does make them a bad guy. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. literally the most villainous thing you can do. Absolutely. And the the fact that we see the Weasleys encounter inflated reading lists and have to make like hard financial decisions yeah. as a result mm-hmm. is a real reminder that like your notion of rigor when you assign 25 books your students won't even read in an undergrad class is actually just uh perpetuating systemic bias against working class students Mm -hmm. yeah and assigning your own book makes you a dick (laughs) it really does too do you like the fact that harry seems to wrestle with the idea of like oh i've got all this money but he never once offers any of it to the weasleys (laughs) like hey you're putting me up and feeding me these six bacon sandwiches maybe i could give you a little bit of money as compensation or or a gift right because like i I can't imagine the weasleys accepting money from him but if he was to be like hey i got you this thing hey ron i bought you some new dress robes hey ron i replaced your shit I'm rolling in money. Why does that never occur to him? Why does it never occur to him to replace the wand? Because he's a fundamentally self-centered character. Oh my god. But also, why doesn't Ron change his own wand? I know there's a suggestion that, like, this is your wand and only you can wield it. But, like, surely wands must break before. And if Ron is messing up his spells for an entire school year? (laughs) Well, in the film version, McGonagall suggests that the wand should be replaced. Like, there's a suggestion that after passing wands down or whatever, that wands run out of power need to be replaced. That's not in the book, but it's in the film. And I'm just like... You have the richest best friend in the world. (laughs) Why are you nearly killing yourself with your own wand? Yeah, it was already a bad wand when we meet Ron at the beginning of the first book. Yeah. His wand is described as like a ratty used handmaid-down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. Like he has inherited a family wand. It is not good. And considering the obsession in the books with like you, the wand chooses the wizard and your yeah. wand is so important. Not if you're poor. Not if you're poor. Then no. you get whatever junk is lying around. Eats also, slugs. Harry specifically says that the wealth he has in the wizarding world doesn't apply in the muggle world because they don't take wizarding currency. And yes. then a few pages later, we see Hermione's parents converting muggle money into wizard bunny oh harry i love the fact that the more you dig into it he's yeah you're just kind of like oh harry you're a bit of a dunce aren't you yeah i mean he's 12 how well did any of us understand currency exchange systems at the age of 12 but he's always so certain there are all these adults who could intervene on Ron's behalf and choose not to. Like, mm-hmm. consistently. Like, are you telling me Dumbledore doesn't have, like, one non-broken wand kicking around that <laughs> castle? Yeah, like, right? here's a here's a lost and found box. We've yeah. got, you know... <laughs> also, like, 24 kids die a year. Did none of them leave a wand behind? You can't just pick up a second-hand wand, Brenna. Come yes, on. you can! He literally, <laughs> he literally has one! Has a second-hand wand! <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> Then the climax wouldn't work, ladies. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's uh, that's exactly it. I think a lot of these holes make sense when you think about the book as being told through the perspective of a twelve-year-old. This is true. 
Yeah. Now, Hannah, I remember the last time we talked when we were talking about Philosopher's Stone, you talked about how as the series progresses, it feels like things kind of get retconned. Like Rowling, and by extension the films, didn't necessarily intend for certain things to become meaningful, and then of course they ultimately do. How do you feel about the world building in this second book? Because I felt like this one gave us greater insight as to how this world actually works compared to the first book. Absolutely, and it's really impossible to tell how much of it was planned in advance and how much is retconned around the edges. Mm-hmm. I certainly feel like the snake thing was a retcon. Oh, like the the parcel tongue and that kind yeah. of stuff. Yeah, that just feels to me like a retcon and I don't know if I have any actual textual evidence to back that up, except that like I am not convinced that that was laid there in the first book as a sort of sign that there is something like I'm not convinced that scene in the first book is written in such a way that it indicates that something sort of out of the ordinary is happening there so like I do still feel like there is this tendency to be like oh this detail doesn't make sense let's just uh just come up with an excuse for it it's fun Mm -hmm. wave it away with a wand maybe yeah famously this is a series full of holes the number of narrative and logical and world building gaps in this series is so famous that fan fiction was basically invented to fill them. Fair enough. That's part of why the fandom is so rich because there are so many holes. And I think some of those holes really do come from that tendency to sort of retcon things. Right. But yeah, we're getting a little bit more of the world in this book. Still not that much of it. But little bits, little bits getting filled in. Mm-hmm. I guess the thing that struck me the most was some of the details around Mr. Weasley's job and how ultimately important the idea that there are not just followers of Voldemort out there, but that they also kept magical objects that are mm. forbidden. Here it's introduced in a very slight way with the car, and it's kind of a source of comedy, but it'll increasingly become like, oh, we have to hide things in armors that can transport people and reanimate things. And it's interesting because in a way we're playing backwards catch up, like we're looking at Mm. things in later books and films and seeing, okay, was that the intention originally? Or is it just that we have the virtue of saying like, oh, right, it becomes something later. Yeah, there is a tendency within particular kinds of fan discourse to refer to these moments as Easter eggs, which I always think is really hilarious. So like a popular (laughs) Easter egg in this book is the fact that when Harry is in, I want to say Bergen and Borks, but that sounds wrong. (laughs) Anyway, when he's in that dark wizard shop, he hides in like a wardrobe. Yeah. And that is like the wardrobe the significant one that later on will be used to transport Death Eaters onto the school. Right. Whether or not that was foreshadowing, like a deliberate sort of locating an object that would be significant later on, or whether that was rolling, like revisiting these earlier books and being like, oh, hey, I mentioned this wardrobe. Maybe that could be a thing. I could use that. It doesn't really matter what the order of operations was. What's significant is that... (laughs) In books, they're not called Easter eggs. No, absolutely not. Like, people maybe need to rediscover what an Easter egg truly is, because that's not the correct usage. (laughs) Well, it's fun because, I don't know, I'm thinking back to, like, putting a DVD, like, putting it, oh my god, I called it a DVD, putting, like, a CD-ROM into my computer in 1993 
four and clicking around on the menu screen to see if anything neat popped up. Mm-hmm. Like that's yes. an Easter egg. So it's yes. fascinating to see it rewritten as a way to give an author sort of credit for future planning. It's very strange to me. I'm, I'm fascinated yeah. by the reuse of that language. Yeah, it is. It's a, there's all kinds of interesting things going on and how that language gets then put into books because the whole premise is this sort of interactive digital technology where you animate hidden features of an interface by interacting with it in a particular way. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's a really interesting way, actually, to think about close reading. Yeah. That you're like animating the interface of the book by interacting with it correctly. Mm-hmm. Like, it's kind of neat to think about it that way, but also it's not one of these three. It's almost like magic. Yeah, it is. You know what? Reading is like magic. <laughs> oh, somebody should patent that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Okay, so I think maybe we can close shop there. Any final thoughts on Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets? No. Mm, No. (laughs) Fair enough. Okay. Why a bingo? (laughs) All right. Uh, Yeah, let's do some why a bingo. Okay, so last time, because I didn't have the board memorized, we missed out on a potential bingo. So I don't have it memorized. I'm sending you a link. Amazing. Bingo! Not a good bingo. Okay, let's see. Dead parents. Yes. Abuse. Yes. Yes. Stunt casting. Kenneth Branagh in anything British is stunt casting. Oh, for sure. Yeah. (laughs) 100%. Uh, Mediocre white boys? Yes. Abound. (laughs) How dare you? Uh, allusions to classic lit. In what, what sense? In what sense? Come on, it's rolling. That's all she does. <laughs> what you mean is pastiche of classic lit. <laughs> I mean pastiche of classic lit, but is a pastiche not an illusion? <laughs> Brenna, your your major is English. You you tell me. <laughs> <laughs> I'll allow it. All right. Any other things? I mean, obviously some CGI. Yeah, some Mm -hmm. CGI. I think we can make an argument for gaslighting. Gaslighting, yeah. The Gilderoy Lockhart stuff? Well, the Gilderoy Lockhart stuff for sure. And also just the school pretending there's not a chamber of secrets in the basement. But Brenna, they looked, (laughs) everybody looked and they could never find it. Even though all you had to do is like stand by a toilet and say a word. and (laughs) Yeah, it was super hard to find. Um, I'm not going to make an argument for Love Triangle or Sexual Awakening, but I do want to say that in the spirit of retcon, I do like how in the second film we start to see this sort of flirtatious relationship emerging between Ron and Hermione that is clearly Mm -hmm. not in the books at all. Oh, yeah. 100%. Yeah. We have not achieved a bingo. We have not. We have not. This is so disappointing. Uh, I honestly would have thought we'd get more out of this, but uh, no. Same. Hmm. It's like there's no acerbic wit, that's for sure. I guess we could argue that there are rich people problems. Uh, All the Malfoy's poor people problems in a way. Yeah, I mean, Harry's got some rich people problems. I got all this money and it's embarrassing because my friends are poor. (laughs) Don't you hate it when that happens? Yeah, absolutely. Just give away your money, Harry. (laughs) Redistribute your wealth, you fool. What are you, an activist on Instagram? Just give away your money. That's all anybody wants. You know that Harry Potter would totally be an influencer for, like, brands if he was a real person. (laughs) What's that? Nimbus 2000? How did this get here? 
All right. I think we're done. Are we yes. done? Okay. I think we're done. So if you want to argue with us about our opinions on Harry Potter, <laughs> you can find Joe and I at the hashtag HKHSPod. Joe, where do they find you? I am at B stole my remote, and that's the letter B. And I'm at Brenna C. Gray. That's Gray with an A. And Hannah, if they want to yell at you, where would you most like them to find you for the yelling? <laughs> yeah, specifically for the yelling and only at you. Yeah. Yeah, specifically if you'd like to yell at me on Twitter about Harry Potter, which like, join the club. <laughs> I'm at HKP McGregor. Awesome. And if you have something longer for us, it's always hkhspod at gmail.com. Keep those mini-sode ideas coming. Um, Joe, mm-hmm. I have not looked at our schedule, so I don't know what we're talking about next full full episode or even next mini-sode. So. Okay, well, let me let me take care of this for you. Thank so you. next week we are back into mini-sode territory, and we are kicking off a brand new period of the year. So we're going to have a little July-August forecast. Brenda. Yay! I love July August forecast. My library has started to allow people to return and do uh, at a distance pickup, so I'm very excited to possibly have some physical titles in my hands shortly. Yay! And of course, in two weeks, to herald the arrival of the new Netflix TV series, we're going to be checking out some Babysitters Club. Yeah. That's super exciting. I'm so excited. We'll try to be a little bit more specific about how to do this because, of course, this series has run forever in a day. So we'll have to figure out exactly which aspects we're going to cover of the books. There's some new graphic novels that have come out in the last couple of years and a prequel. So I was thinking I might hit that direction, but uh, we will let you know for sure at the end of next week's mini-sode. I'm going to push really hard for Joe to read Christie's big idea, everybody. Don't worry. <laughs> I don't even know what that is. <laughs> Millennial women, I got you. <laughs> Can't wait. Uh, all right. All right. So um, with that said, um, I guess I'm going to go look directly at a basilisk. Uh, until next time, I'll see you on the page. <laughs> I will see you on the screen. And thanks to Hannah for guesting. Bye. Bye. Thanks, Hannah. Bye. Bye.